Section 11 of The Lion's Brood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The Lion's Brood by Duffield Osborne. Section 11. Politics. On the following day, Sergius, true to his purpose, ordered his litter to be brought, and reclining as his weakness compelled, was borne down into the forum crowded with its mass of turbulent and perspiring humanity. Nor was the temper of the rabble doubtful. On every side he heard arrangements of Fabius, and through him all men guilty of good birth or riches. Under every portico, speakers were pouring forth harangues whose ignorance was only matched by their coarseness and surpassed by their reckless malevolence. Once he bade his bearers set him down, near where one Quantus Habeus Herenus, a plebeian tribune and a relative of Varro's, was holding forth to a sympathetic crowd. "'Do you not know, ye foolish Romans?' cried the orator alternately slapping his thigh, waving his arms, and casting up his eyes, that this Hannibal was brought into Italy by these very nobles, who are always desiring war? Can you not see how they are protracting the war when you consider that one man of the people, our own Minicius, when he committed the four legions, was sufficient for the enemy? Behold how this traitorous, this noble Fabian, scheme to expose the brave Minicus and two legions of the people to destruction, and only rescued the remnant that he might pose as their savior and be saluted father and patron. There, indeed, our Minicus was at fault, as what honest poor man is not when confronted by the wiles of those bred to craft and trickery. See, too, how the consuls have followed the same dilatory measures, and can you doubt that it is all by agreement with these traitor nobles? Know well now that this war will have no ending until a man of the people ends it, a real plebeian, a new man. See you not that both consuls, by tarrying with the army, have set up an interregnum, that the wicked nobles may better influence your choice? But if you be true Romans, such as those who camped upon the sacred hill, you will remember that one consulship at least is yours by law, and you will elect a man to fill it, one who is of yourselves, and who will spurn the rich, as they now seek to spurn you and me and all good men. Sergius had listened to this harangue and to the applause which greeted it, with mingled feelings of indignation and sorrow sentiments to which was added surprise when he noted through the closed curtains of his litter that several patricians passed by and smiled and nodded to the speaker while he poured forth his diatribes. Now, however, a new commotion seemed to agitate the throng, who, turning suddenly, ran pell-mell in one direction, almost overturning the litter, a catastrophe from which it was only saved by a vigorous use of the bearer's staves upon the heads of the nearest. 
Sergius thrust aside the curtains and half raised himself to see the cause of the disturbance. The brightly fullered gown of a candidate flashed before his eyes, and he recognized Varro, standing upon a silversmith's counter, smiling this way and that, grasping the hands of those nearest, kissing his own to the very outskirts of the mob, and all the while crying out to the promptings of his nomenclator, Greetings to you, Marcus. Health, Quintus. Commend me to your brother, Micaeus. Eh, yes, to be sure. When he shall return from the army. Ah, friends, when I am consul there will be a hasty returning from such foolish wars. You shall see the African fork-bearers winding through the forum. And that is the first word of truth I have heard from you, Varro. Or from your Herenius here, cried Sergius, who had risen and now stood pale and gaunt beside his litter. With you and such as you to command, we may well look to see the African fork-bearers winding through the forum, yes, and pillaging amid its ruins. A roar of vituperation drowned whatever answer the candidate might have made, as with brandished clubs, cleavers, knives, styli, any weapon that could be snatched up from the booths, the nearest score of the crowd made a dash at the presumptuous noble. The litter-bearers were sturdy fellows, and their staves were stout, but the contest was far too unequal. One had gone down with a deep gash in the shoulder, and the others were quickly forced back upon their master. Sergius stood with his back to one of the square pillars of Pepperino, with folded arms and pale face upon which hovered a smile of ineffable scorn. He recognized his peril, the fate that had befallen many noble Romans in the election riots of the Republic, but his sentiment was rather one of indifference than of perturbation, and he was about to order his slaves to give up their hopeless defense in order that the crowd might let them at least go without further hurt, when an entirely unexpected diversion brought him relief and safety. Varro had viewed the attack upon his critic with a pleasure that he scarcely tried to conceal. He kept begging his adherents to be moderate and abstain from violence, but in so low a voice that his consuls could not be heard except by those immediately around him, and they were entirely inaudible to the howling assailants to whom they were presumably addressed. Another voice, however, a shrill female voice, came suddenly to Sergius' ears. Would that my brother could come to life and command another fleet, that the streets might be less crowded. Sergius recognized in a rich litter that was tossed hither and thither by the billows of the mob the face of the sister of Publius Claudius, who had lost for Rome the naval battle off Deprenum. The mob, too, recognized her, and the scornful speech bit deeply. All around rose a cry of, To the Aedils with her! To the Aedils! She has rejoiced in the death of our brothers. May the gods curse the noble! And in a moment Sergius found himself alone, but for his bruised and bleeding servants, while the tide of riot swept up the forum bearing the litter upon its tossing crests, and the virago within, contained to scream out her defiance and contempt. 
Varro remained surrounded by a few friends, and as Sergius approached, he drew himself up as to reinforce his courage with a sense of importance. The tribune was about to pass him without a word, but the demagogue, emboldened by this seeming unwillingness for an encounter, placed himself in his path. Do you hear the kindly wishes that the great express for the health of their poorer countrymen, he began tauntingly. It is like your kind, Vero, replied Sergius, speaking slowly and in tones of profound contempt. To attribute to our party any intemperance of a single opponent, but do you also credit us with the virtues of individuals? I might with better grace attribute the murderous attack just made and with your connivance upon myself to the party of the people. That I do not do. You may lay to a moderation and magnanimity that are not learned in the tradesman's booth or the butcher's shambles. Varro flushed crimson, and he looked from side to side as if to call upon his friends for new violence. But a company of young patricians were descending from the comita and his fellows were dull of comprehension. Do you beware, though, Varro, continued Sergius, lest in striving to attain power and place on the wings of colony against those better than yourself, or by the suggestion of false grievances to those who are ignorant and weak, you may by these things incite one riot too many. Beware above all things lest you win, then, drawing his toga clothes, as if to avoid a contaminating touch, he strode by to join the approaching band of young men, leaving his opponent vicious to snarl, but powerless to bite. After the usual greetings and inquiries concerning his health, they walked on together toward the curtain pool, and Sergius thoughts took on a deeper color from the despondent speech of his friends. That Varro would receive the votes of the centuries, beyond all doubt, was unanimously conceded, and so great was the dissatisfaction with Fabius that their regret seemed only for the manner of the popular victory and the man who was to gain it. A few hotheads dropped hints to the effect that it might become necessary to reorganize the patrician clubs and meet violence with violence, in which event there could be but little doubt as to the result. But the sentiment of the majority was adverse to such measures, and they viewed the possibilities with an indifference that to Sergius seemed even more ominous than the frenzy of the rabble and the worthlessness of its leaders. His attempts to defend the Fabian policy, speaking as one of its victims, were hopelessly thrown away. All Rome was mad for battle, even at the cost of sending the butcher's son to command the legions, and two days later the result of low chicanery and indifferent lethargy took shape. The trumpet had summoned the army of the city to the field of Mars, and century after century had entered the enclosure to cast its vote for Varro, for Varro alone, until no one of the noble candidates who received the half-hearted support of their fellows got even enough pebbles to be proclaimed elected to the second consulship. To Vera alone, cringing and insolent, 
was the oath administered. For Vero alone was the prayer put up. For Vero was the declaration twice made according to the laws of the Republic, and into Vero's hands was placed the presidency over the assembly that was to elect his colleague. Then followed an exhibition of plebeian cunning. There were among the supporters of the consul those who realized what he himself could not, his military incompetence and the terrible necessity that, at such a juncture, there should be at least one soldier consul. Vero had won on his merits as self-announced, on the strength of his own arraignment of his adversary's shortcomings. He stood forth the inclination of party and class hatred, and now the victors, half-dazed by the very completeness of their triumph, paused in mid-career to look for a soldier with whom the army might be entrusted. That he must be a noble was self-evident. Even the rabble, now that its first outburst had passed, was not so mad as to attribute military skill to any of its wordy leaders. The butcher's colleague must be a patrician, but he must be such a patrician as would cast reproach upon his class while he supplied the one quality requisite to the plebeian situation, to whose political acumen first occurred the name of Lucius Aemilius Paulus. No one seemed to know, but once suggested, there was none to deny its entire appropriateness. Paulus was a veteran of several wars, an experienced commander, a brave soldier, and there his merits ended. He had been brought to trial for misappropriation of the plunder taken in the Irillian campaign, and, as many thought, acquitted by means as scandalous as the crime itself, while his less influential colleague suffered for both. Harsh and rude, no high-born Roman was less popular, and his exaggeration of class insolence bade fair to offer him as an illustration, ready to the tongue of every demagogue, of what the people must always expect from patrician rule. So, one by one, the five noble opponents of Varro were rejected, and the word went out that of their enemies the people would have Paulus and him alone. End of section 11. Recording by Tom Mack.